Texas talking. Oh, what was that that you said? Texas talking. Ah, gonna hoop upside your head. Texas talking. Tell me who can you trust when Texas guys are Texas guys Hello, this is Chip Roy, candidate for the 21st Congressional District. Enjoy this week's TribCast, available as a four-disc book on tape, featuring in-depth interviews of the 18 GOP candidates for the 21st Congressional District. And now, here's your host, Emily Ramshaw. Thank you. This is Emily Ramshaw here on the third Wednesday in January with your Texas Tribune TribCast, our weekly podcast about all things Texas politics and policy. Special thanks to this week's sponsors, Annie's List, presenting Senator Elizabeth Warren on Friday, February 2nd in Austin, RSVP at annieslist.com. And Texas Tech University. Texas Tech is creating degrees of impact and making a difference every day. Learn more at ttu.edu. All right, well, I'm pleased to be joined this week uh, by an all-star lineup. We've got reporter Marissa Evans. Hi, everybody. Reporter Aliyah Swaby. Hello. And reporter Patrick Svitek. Good afternoon. We decided to kick Evan and Ross to the curb because so many of you were tired of their endless banter. <laughs> uh, all right, we are taking your questions via Facebook and Twitter, so please go ahead and send them our way. I want to start um, with a project that Marissa landed this week called Dangerous Deliveries. That's a look at the state's abysmal maternal mortality rate, uh, and that's mothers dying from pregnancy-related complications either before or after childbirth. Um, and as a relatively new mom, two years in, I want to lay out two horrifying statistics for me personally. The first was that maternal mortality across the U.S. in this modern day and age rose 27% between 2000 and 2014. This is like the dark ages, folks. Um, and then in Texas, the rate apparently doubled in that same time period. Um, so Marissa, what is going on here? How is this happening? It's just crazy right now. We have a lot of things that are actually happening all at once for Texas women. So when you think about it, we have the highest uninsured rate um, in general in the country, but also the highest uninsured rate among women. So that's a factor. So women are not getting access to doctors. They don't have insurance, so they can't get the care that they need. So they're not getting prenatal care or, no or follow-up appointments? No follow-up appointments. Yeah. But then also you have you know a lot of chronic health issues that aren't being taken care of. So think of your heart disease, your high blood pressure, your diabetes. All of these things are play a factor into how, if you, whether or not you have a healthy pregnancy. So it's a big deal that the women in Texas aren't able to access those types of services. So that's like one chunk of it all. But right. then you also have these programs. You know, we've made major changes to women's health programs in Texas. And no matter where you fall on, on the political spectrum, you know, <laughs> we've made those changes and it's happening. And, and with the Healthy Texas Women program, we have women being served, but not all Texas women have access to those programs or even Medicaid. Because right, there have just been such big changes right. in sort of how do you even know which service you're supposed to exactly. go to or which program. Exactly, and you know, the state is actually working on to, trying to find ways to make sure women are matched with the right programs, but mm -hmm. the eligibility is so strict. You know, if you make even a few dollars above the eligibility, you can't get in. And it doesn't mean you're not necessarily low income, it just means you still don't qualify for these programs that could save lives. Um, so there's that, but then like we talked about before, you know, that means women are not getting access to prenatal or postpartum care, but also access to birth control. Mm -hmm. um, so if you don't intend to get pregnant and you do, well, now you also don't qualify for these programs and you're kind of paying out of pocket for a lot of the services you need. So like I said, just a variety of factors. What are the major, what are the major causes of death that, you know, we've seen sort of growing when it comes to women before and after, um, you know, delivery of a baby? Opioids is a big deal. You know, we're in the 
middle of an opioid crisis, so access to substance abuse services is also important in terms of how we fight maternal mortality in Texas. Um, access to mental health services, so suicide is a big deal. So thinking of postpartum depression um, and helping women through that has also been um, a major thing that the state task force has talked about. Um, and also, you know, things that happen right after pregnancy. So you're thinking about women who bleed out, mm-hmm. you know, in the hospital or even at home. Um, you're also thinking about women who get postpartum preeclampsia. So that's when um, a recently pregnant woman's blood pressure just skyrockets mm-hmm. out of nowhere to the point where she could have a stroke. I mean, it's these women are enduring horrible, horrible things right after giving birth on what should be a happy moment for them, right. hopefully. So it, it's a devastating thing. And it was, you know, kind of devastating to write about and report on and actually read about constantly for months. Right. I mean, the Serena Williams has actually been the big headline of this in recent weeks, didn't she? You know, she was quoted sort of extensively, I think, in Vogue or one mm-hmm. of these magazines talking about, I mean, how she almost died. She basically like diagnosed herself in the right. hours, you know, after her child's birth. Um, you know, this crisis obviously is particularly pronounced for mothers of color and primarily black mothers. What did the data show, particularly in Texas, about, about you know, the risk for black moms? Black moms are just way more at risk than white women, than Hispanic women. And, you know, I think it's really easy to kind of look at it from a chronic health perspective. So, you know, high blood pressure, diabetes, et cetera. But you, I think we also have to look at, you know, systemic racism in our healthcare system. We also have to think about how microaggressions play a role in whether or not black women are accessing services or feel like they can access services. So there are these racial undertones that are also at play, but also, it also comes back to major things that black women need. So health insurance, mm-hmm. something that they're lacking. Um, they have a variety of chronic health issues that are not being taken care of. Um, and as we've seen with the Serena Williams story, you know, if Serena Williams, a, a black woman of true <laughs> significance at the this moment in time- Best cannot, athlete probably right, in the world. In the right. world right now, can, is having to fight with doctors. Right. To be prepared, taken seriously. To be taken seriously, right. which I would not, I would go against Serena Williams myself, but, <laughs> you know, so I'm surprised. I, when I read that, I was like, wow, they let to tell the tale? I don't know. So, I mean, I think that if she couldn't get the care that she needed, then what does that mean for other black women who are not considered of significance, who are maybe whether middle class or even considered low income? How are they being perceived? How are doctors perceiving them or their pain and what they're going through? So. Right. All of that is just so important. Well, I want to ask you something that's a little bit complicated, but that's, you know, in the midst of us reporting on this project, like right when we were about to pull the trigger, we noticed that the data on the state's health website on maternal mortality suddenly changed. And it looked like the problem, you know, while still bad, wasn't as bad as we thought. Mm-hmm. What happened? I mean, what's the Cliff's Notes version the of Cliff's like, Notes version? What, what is the <laughs> this quote unquote like latest data telling us? So the way the, the data part of maternal mortality is always been just a really big sore spot for researchers, for Texas legislators, because no one really seems to know what is the truest, most accurate data that we have. So the Department of State Health Services is working on developing a new methodology that will basically go back and make sure that when someone's checking the pregnancy-related death box, that they actually were someone who was recently pregnant. So it wasn't like someone who was in a car accident or something right, like that. Right, right. So really making sure it was an actual healthcare-related type of issue, mm-hmm. um, which is good. You know, more accurate data is great. But the problem is that data differs from CDC data. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it makes it more difficult to study the problem because everyone's numbers are going to be a little bit different. Right. And every state now is sort of calculating exactly. these records in like slightly different ways. Exactly. Right? Exactly. So the takeaway was that maybe Texas's rate is not as 
terrible as we thought, but it's still terrible. It's still terrible. Right. It's still bad. Like don't, yeah, don't let anyone tell you otherwise. All right. Good. <laughs> Sounds good. Well, thank you, Marissa. Uh, just a reminder, um, Facebook viewers, uh, Twitter viewers, if you're watching along, uh, you can please send us your comments in the questions and we'll try to get to them as soon as we can. So, um, all right. Well, Patrick, I want to talk to you about Governor Abbott, who has... Of course. Yeah, oh, oh, really? Actually, <laughs> I'd like to talk to you about maternal mortality. Oh, no. <laughs> I, had a follow, uh, I actually had a follow-up question oh, wait, wait, on wait, maternal wait, mortality. I should have jumped in. Yes, please. <laughs> yes. Go for I, it. I'm curious uh, what your findings in this data, how this uh, meshes or dovetails with the legislative action that we saw on this issue mm -hmm. during the special session, that maternal mortality task force item seemed to be the least controversial. Everyone could rally mm -hmm. around it. Mm -hmm. um, where is that at? I mean, is there so, is there an update there? I mean, not really. Um, <laughs> no, let me, I'll say right, this. Let me say this. Good let question. me say this. Let me say this. So the, tw the regular session was when we had that small meltdown at the very end with the Maternal Mortality Task Force bill, a bill that, like you said, should right. have been pretty yeah. smooth sailing, but of course, you know, it wasn't. No offense to legislators. Nothing's um, ever smooth sailing. Nothing's ever smooth sailing. Um, but then in the special session, you know, we got some bills done that you know actually will renew the task force which is good because we need them to study what's going on but also kind of recalibrates what exactly they're studying so related to postpartum depression um, related to um, what other states are doing related to maternal mortality and how they're fighting it so very important changes if you will but in terms of was it deemed like a priority during the regular session my reporting I would say no um, I think that you know, we focused a lot on, you know, shank three cities, child welfare, all, you know, important issues to be of discussion, but maternal mortality really took a back seat until the special session. Right. Um, and, you know, that's not something everyone wants to really hear, but it's true. Um, we didn't really make it a priority until we had to make it a priority, right. um, which I thought was interesting. Uh, a question on Facebook from Ash. So mm -hmm. under the new data, is Texas still the worst ranked state on maternal mortality? It's hard, well, hard yeah, to well, know, Ash, right? That's a great question, Ash. <laughs> right. um, I'm going to try to hedge it a bit, so I'm not going to be in the weeds. So it depends on which data you're looking at. So, for example, if you actually look at CDC data, you know Texas might not actually be number one. It actually will probably be, I think, Mississippi or Mississippi's always oh, right, one, right, right. One of the poor states, unfortunately. Right. Um, so it just depends on what which data set you're looking at, which methodology you're looking at, all of that plays a role in terms of what data you're seeing. But Texas is not at the top of the list as far as like strides we've made. Right, no, we're yeah. not. All right. <laughs> All right, Patrick, now Thanks, you can Patrick. get out of your questions. Uh, you have to answer right. questions. I want to talk about <laughs> Governor Abbott putting his thumb on the scale in some of these key um, primary uh, races, including endorsing the opponent of you know more moderate Republican Sarah Davis in Houston. So she's the incumbent. So late last week, he really went on offense against her, making some pretty serious and potentially damaging claims in her district. What did he say about her? Yeah, so he has endorsed her primary challenger, Susanna Dockipil. Um, you know, he and Davis clashed uh, during the special session, particularly over some issues, including um, there was some tension. She had been pushing for him to expand the, the call of the special session to include ethics reform. His office had denounced it as showboating. So there was certainly some bad blood there during the special session. Uh, fast forward a few months and he endorses her primary challenger and not only endorses her primary challenger, but is, is making pretty clear that he's willing to go all in for this primary challenger. He hosted a fundraiser for her last week uh, in the district or, or in Houston. And um, according to a, you know a, a segment of Abbott's remarks that that we received, um, Abbott went after her, uh, particularly as it relates to Hurricane Harvey relief, 
and uh, he, uh, we don't know exactly which piece of legislation, he didn't say exactly which piece of legislation he was referring to, but he appeared to be referring to a piece of legislation um, that sought during the special session to reverse uh, 2015 cuts to uh, Medicaid therapy services. For kids, and mm -hmm. right. Exactly. And uh, Sarah Davis had introduced this bill. As introduced, it would have been funded at least partly by tapping the state's uh, rainy day fund, the savings account. Um, but there was this uh, back and forth on the floor, and ultimately the funding source uh, was changed to the disaster relief fund, which is overseen by the governor's office. Um, Sarah Davis had actually opposed the amendment that changed it to the disaster relief fund. That didn't stop Abbott at this fundraiser uh, from uh, basically saying Sarah Davis engineered a plot to raid the, the disaster relief fund uh, just a month before Hurricane Harvey, which devastated this district. Um, so, you know, clearly a, a politically charged uh, way to use Hurricane Harvey. And if he is indeed referring to House Bill 25, the, the, the one that it appears he's referring it, to, it's I a, mean, he it's must a, be referring. That's a the only false, thing. A he false portrayal of her of her role in that, at least in her role in uh, that we can publicly see on the on the floor at the time. Right. So I think and Abbott's so, quote was she quote engineered an effort to convince the Texas House to cut millions quote from the Texas Disaster Relief Fund. So Davis has called Abbott's remarks the quote most disingenuous attack I have ever seen. So, I mean, in, if we are talking about the same legislation, which it sounds like we are, is it your understanding that Abbott, you know, is falsely making comments to try to tarnish her reputation? That could be the case. Abbott could have had the wrong information. He could have been misspeaking or, I mean, I guess the other option, he, he could have been, you know, purposely deceptive. Um, there are certainly, you know, we don't have exactly all the facts, all the context of what he was referring to, um, you know, but if he was referring to that House Bill 25, uh, based on the facts that we know, I think it is a, a false portrayal of, so, of Davis's role in that in that particular piece of legislation. I mean, I think one of the interesting pieces of irony here is that the fact is the fact that the person who lodged that amendment, you know, mm. to cut the, to use the money from the governor's disaster relief fund was actually a more conservative member exactly. of the legislature, right? So, I mean, someone right, yeah, Matt Krause, Fort Worth. Uh, state lawmaker, member of the, the conservative House Freedom Caucus. Yeah. So, I, I mean, unless he doesn't know that that's <laughs> the case. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, I think, yeah, you know, we've gone through the facts. I mean, big picture, I think it, it shows some of these incumbents who Abbott has run afoul of the lengths to which he's willing to go to defeat them. Mm -hmm. um, you know, every step of the way since the beginning of the special session, there's been, you know, these uh, different rounds of skepticism about what Abbott's going to do. You know, is he actually going to endorse against House incumbents? Well, he did that. Is, oh, is he just going to put out a statement? Well, he's putting out videos for some of them. He's, he's cutting these kind of digital ads for some of them. Well, is he going to raise money for them? Is he going to campaign in the district? At least in this one case, he is doing that. Uh, and, it's you know, based on this, this quote that we have, it shows that he's willing to make some, you know, pretty charged uh, attacks on behalf of the primary challengers, even mm -hmm. if they are, uh, th there are factual problems with those remarks. Right. All right. Well, this is a particularly interesting case, an interesting one to watch just because it's it's a high-profile race and his, his you know, involvement in it is pretty high-profile. Uh, just for a quick reminder, folks, if you're listening to this TribCast on iTunes, if you could take a second and review us and subscribe, that would be great. Uh, here's an example. Here's a recent review from Ash of Texas. TribCast is my go-to source for Texas political news and developments. I can always count on the team to answer my questions and make me laugh. It's a privilege <laughs> to hear from these folks. We're, we're just like all, so nice. all grins and giggles today. Right? Exactly. So nice. All right, well, Aaliyah, um, I want to talk to you about the latest in this running special ed fight in Texas, uh, this question of whether Texas districts were intentionally denying special ed services to students in need. But first, I want you to get us um, up to speed, starting with telling us about a federal report that landed last week. 
Yeah, so after a 15-month or so investigation, federal officials came out with a report last week um, that said a lot of things, but principally that Texas had, that there was proof from their interviews uh, that Texas had created a statewide system that incentivized school districts denying services to students with special needs, um, that a lot of school administrators they talked to didn't understand the way, the basis of, of this federal law, didn't understand that um, that students uh, could receive special education services in a regular general education classroom. Um, and that's an important tenet of the, the federal law that that uh, students with special education uh, should be educated in uh, the least restrictive environment. Mm-hmm. So that includes uh, regular education, general education classes. Um, was this and, a pretty scathing report? I mean, yeah, okay. I mean, it was it was very specific in in a lot of the the interviews that it had done and, uh, you know, uh, documented where exactly Texas had run afoul of this federal law. And so immediately after the report landed, Governor Abbott released a statement really sort of criticizing local school districts for their, quote, dereliction of duty. That um, touched a nerve, did it not? Oh, it did. <laughs> what nerve did it touch? What was the what was the reaction from the, the districts after seeing that statement? So um, districts, I think, and educators and educator groups were upset that Abbott had uh, you know, seemingly put all of this uh, responsibility on them when there was a, you know, a state policy or a state incentive at least um, to do what they were doing. And from the t- Texas Education from Agency? the Texas Education mm-hmm. Agency, and also, so they referred back to an interim report from 2004 uh, from the House Public Education Committee. So from legislators themselves, right, from legislators um, stating that. Uh, they they were sort of comparing Texas to other states and how it funded special education. And it said that one way that states have reduced costs for special education was to cap the number of students that had received these services. So that's not necessarily saying that that's what they did, but it was at least on their minds when they were discussing uh, how to fund special education. So is this the first time that has come out, that maybe the legislature may have been, you know, the one sort of <coughs> directing them at least, you know, in a backhanded way to make those kinds of moves? It's the first time I've heard about it. Um, I actually don't know why it hasn't come to light before. I think there was just so much other um, news coming out when when the Houston Chronicle first came out with this reporting um, that, you know, the the state and federal context around it hasn't really been well reported on this issue. Mm -hmm. Um, And and yeah, it was it was the first time at least I had heard Mm -hmm. this. I mean, it's like this fascinating turn of events because you've had the legislature basically all these lawmakers since all these this news broke, basically, you know, blaming the TEA and blaming Mm -hmm. the districts for this. Now you've got, you know, parents and, and advocates and teachers saying, actually, the legislature may have played a role in this. You know, in in pushing for a cap, you have TEA saying, no, 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 there was never a cap. Mm -hmm. You know, we didn't put in place a cap. The school district saying, you know, yes, we instituted this cap or what we interpreted as a cap. There's a lot of finger pointing here. Mm -hmm. I mean, does the buck stop with anybody or are we determining here that the buck sort of stops with everyone? I I mean, I think that that would make sense moving forward to figure out policy. I think it's pretty clear that whether or not the state policy um, you know, impacted the way uh, school districts were doing this. School districts were still doing this. Teachers still lack training um, and understanding of, of the federal law. And so to change it, I think you have to go through and, and talk about how everyone can change their actions. I think parents have been clear that 
ultimately, you know, they hold educators, they hold their, their children's teachers and administrators accountable for, for actually, you know, sometimes denying them services that they parents specifically have asked for for their children. Right. That dovetails with a question we're getting from social mm-hmm. media. Um, are the parents of these kids seeking recourse from the state? I'm curious to know what reparations look like after the results of the investigation. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people have asked me about a class action lawsuit Um, I haven't heard that there's one currently brewing. Um, I think that from what I know, it would be pretty difficult to actually um, get that in place in Fifth Circuit. Like there's 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 complications in, in the way that that would happen. But if they wanted to do that just as sort of a principle of the matter sort of thing that could right. be possible. I, mean, I think there are questions about who you sue in that right. case mm-hmm. because you'd have to probably sue the districts because right. uh, it's my understanding that the state would have sovereign immunity right. in a case like this. Yeah, it's very hard to sue the state. Right. And legislators, you know, a recommendation isn't the same thing as, you know, passing a law to do something. But so what happens now? What's next? I know there's there's more to come in this saga. Definitely. Yeah, Texas. So uh, Governor Abbott required that Texas, that the education agency come out with a plan this week um, so potentially tomorrow, uh, to reform this. So just say how the, how they're going to uh, train teachers in the future, how they're going to find students who have been denied these services and provide them with services. Um, right. I, how do you go backward in time? Right. And I yeah. think that's the point that parents are hoping don't get doesn't get lost because there are all of these students, potentially thousands of these students, um, who just you know don't have services. The longer you go without services for some of these disabilities, for example, dyslexia, mm-hmm. it's a lot harder to to get back on track after about third grade. So you know if it's been years and years that these kids have been denied services, that means that their their pathways are looking really different for careers and 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 future education than it would have been if they had you know been provided the services in the first place. Financially how does this work? Because I thought the original incentive behind reducing some of these services was to save money for these districts. So if districts are A, being forced to suddenly serve way more students or and B, you know, being forced to provide services for students who, you know, maybe need to get caught Mm -hmm. up, where does this money come from? Yeah, I mean, so the the federal government, I think, covers around 16% maybe is the number of uh, of special education costs for students, um, and then the rest of the money is state and local funding. And so, you know, I think that that parents I've talked to have been concerned about what is the actual money that is going to be put on this right. plan when it comes out? Because you can say whatever you want, um, but I think parents are really skeptical about the execution of this, and that that means financially as well. As they should be. Yeah. All right. Well, just a reminder, Facebook and Twitter viewers, you can post your questions in the comments. We've got a few more minutes here. Uh, and Patrick, I oh. actually had a question for earlier. I actually came from. I'm cutting everybody off. I, I, was, I was like waiting Emily. for my end. I'm so sorry. Emily. So Emily. cut me off. Just cut me off. <laughs> so Aaliyah, we, we came at about the same time in October 2016. And so you've handled everything beautifully. I'm like a big Aaliyah fan. Um, but what has it been like for you to cover this special ed scandal, to have to jump in on something so major after coming out of state? Yeah. I mean, so when I first came in, uh, the Houston Chronicles series had already come out. Um, and so, yeah, it was a matter of reaching out to as many uh, advocates as possible. And advocates, I think at, at the time, because it was something that had come to light after a while, were, uh, were just like talking to, to as many people as possible and trying to get their stories out there. Um, and since then, there's been a lot of advocacy. We've held our own events, um, you know, talking to parents and, and um, getting these, these stories out there. So it's been a lot of work, and it's a really complicated <laughs> issue. But, but, um, but yeah, I think that this story has, has moved forward significantly since I, I got here. 
Well, I think that question probably gave Patrick enough time to read the governor's tax plan. So the governor was in Houston on Tuesday to unveil his uh, brand new property tax platform, effectively. Uh, Patrick, what's he trying to do? Yeah, so um, I'm reading off my phone because our, our property tax guru, uh, Brandon Formby, mm-hmm. helped us with this story. So uh, much love to him. Uh, but a, <laughs> a, key, a key part of it. Brandon, uh, are you listening? <laughs> if you're listening. Uh, so a key part of it would, would be to uh, prevent local governments, so cities, counties, school districts, um, from collecting more than 2, 2.5% more in property tax revenue than they did in the, the prior year without voter approval. And to get that voter approval, they'd have to get two thirds of voters, not just a simple majority mm-hmm. um, to go above the or to increase above the, the 2.5 percent uh, cutoff line and so this is a, a more ambitious uh, certainly more far-reaching property tax proposal uh, than the ones that failed to make it to the finish line uh, last year at the Capitol, especially during the special session. Was this, this was one of his uh, emergency items, right? Or one of it his, was, uh, and I, I sure, I'm sure call. personally to him, it was the biggest disappointment of all those 20, of, of the 10 items, I guess, that didn't come out of the special session. And this is, uh, you know, he this was a campaign event, or he's unveiling this under the, you know, through his campaign. And so, uh, you know, it functions as both uh, policy and politics. And this this gives him something to talk about in his reelection campaign. It gives him kind of a uh, an issue to lay out for lawmakers heading into the 2019 mm-hmm. session. Um, and so I think that you know he, he wants to make this the number one issue this election cycle uh, as a way of building public support for it and political support for it as he as we go into the next session. Right. So I mean, it's important mm-hmm. to note like he can't do this alone. This isn't something right. the governor can do with any kind of like executive action. I mean, this is he's basically just laying out yet another proposal that would have to come before the legislature. Yeah, right? absolutely. And he got some questions about that as, as he was rolling out this plan in Houston about you know what's changed. Um, as we pointed out, some less ambitious property tax proposals couldn't make it out right. of the legislature, you know, in the House in particular, uh, during the special session. Um, you know, he didn't say this, but there's obviously going to be a new Speaker of the House. Mm-hmm. Um, Dan Patrick was with him in Houston and very explicitly expressed hope that the, the next Speaker <laughs> of the House is more... It's uh, not yeah, uh, uh, anything you know, like Joe Strauss. Not that Joe Strauss was, you know... Explicitly against property tax reform, but that the you know he Patrick expressed hope the next speaker is more amenable to the kind of proposal that Abbott mm-hmm. has put forward, mm-hmm. um, and Abbott is rolling out this event, uh, rolling out this plan at, at two events, as you said, the one in Houston, one today in, in Arlington that was rescheduled, and he's doing it surrounded by a number of. Uh, you know, important lawmakers. Like I said, in Houston, he was joined by uh, the lieutenant governor. Uh, sitting to his left uh, was Dennis Bonin, state representative, chairman of the, the House Ways and Means Committee, very influential in, in, in tax policy. And he was surrounded by state senators and state representatives at each stop. Um, and so, you know, I mean, again, the, the, I think the, the goal, at least in the short term, is to start building public and, and political support mm-hmm. for this, um, even if the, you know, what's ultimately introduced in the 2019 legislature isn't exactly the same as this proposal. Right. Well, local governments, local school districts are not known for loving to be told what they can and can't do with their taxes. Uh, Aaliyah, what have you heard already from, uh, you know, school districts or local, you know, property tax folks on mm-hmm. this issue? Yeah, I mean, I think, so Abbott's proposal said that he would uh, put up money for this. So um, I think that there's a lot of skepticism among school districts about whether this is going to be another unfunded mandate like they saw throughout the special session or you know whether there's actually going to be more money put into school districts to 
help them actually keep uh, property taxes low. So basically, he said, you know, he's like throwing, trying to throw a carrot to the to these taxing districts, right? Saying, you know, like to school districts, you know, if suddenly you see some big reduction in in money, what, you know, the state legislature would help you. I mean, what's the what was the carrot he was trying to give to them? That's a good question. He was asked, you know, specifically about school finance reform. And, right. you know, he pointed to this commission that he had, uh, you know, pushed to assemble successfully during the, the special session. And that commission, I believe, has to report its findings uh, by the end of this year, 2018. Mm -hmm. And so he, he seemed to acknowledge that school finance reform is going to go hand in hand with this or be a precursor to mm -hmm. this. Um, but beyond that, didn't get too much too many specifics for him, at least in response to that one question about right. how school finance fits into this plan for the time being. Right. I mean, is it pretty common for governors who are running for re-election to sort of roll out a new slate of platform mm. uh, uh, of, you know, sort of pro policy proposals the way they would if they were running for the first time? Like, here's my platform. Yeah, I, I don't I think it's I don't think it's uncommon. I mean, you know, Abbott has already used his re-election campaign as kind of a vehicle for rolling out policy. He put out this veterans uh, plan. Uh, in I think early December. So this isn't the first time that he's used his campaign as a vehicle for rolling out policy. Um, Should we expect so. to see more? I, I think so. And <laughs> especially if he doesn't have a competitive reelection race. Right. Uh, right now, it doesn't look like that. Um, you know, I think that this is where he's going to spend a lot of his time and energy is rolling out these policies and, and trying to build public and political support for them ahead of the next session. Well, in the last minute that we have here, um, give us the lowdown on the latest campaign finance numbers from his potential competitors, including um, Lupe Valdez and um, uh, Andrew White. Yeah, so I guess the <laughs> you have to specify yeah. that Abbott, you know, this is all within the context of Abbott having, having 50 million orders of magnitude above these candidates. He has a $43 million war chest. He raised over $9 million in the second half of last year. So with that out of the way, you you, you know, two of the, the more high profile of the nine Democrats who've lined up to run against him, Lupe Valdez and um, Andrew White, they put out their fundraising numbers this week, or they disclosed their fundraising numbers this week. Uh, Valdez and White announced around the same time in early December, so it's a pretty easy way to kind of compare them. Uh, White raised over $200,000, 40, 40000 of which came from the candidate. Valdez uh, raised $46,000. Um, her campaign later said in a statement um, that she wasn't, or suggested in a statement at least, that she wasn't focused on fundraising during that period because she was still Dallas County Sheriff. Mm -hmm. She didn't formally give up that position until the uh, until the 1st of January, um, which is, uh, <laughs> it's, it's, it's credible spin. She certainly didn't publicly campaign during that period. Right. So I guess she was consistent with, you know, also not raising money during that period or not raising, actively raising money during that period. Uh, but doesn't change the fact that we are still, uh, we're, we're, you know, early voting is almost here. Right. It's, you know, five, four mm -hmm. or five weeks away. What's more important, name ID or money? At this point, I think name ID is, yeah. <laughs> but none, none of them, you know, have it. Right. At least, uh, obviously, Valdez has it in, in her home, you know, uh, home of Dallas County, um, but none of them have it on a statewide level by any measure at this point. Mm. So, um, all right. Well, we'll check back in with you on it next week. That's all the time we have, folks. If you like listening to the Tribcast every week, please do us a favor and leave us a review on iTunes. Those ratings help us reach more listeners like you. And if you support the Tribune's nonprofit, nonpartisan newsroom, please consider making a donation at support.texastribune.org. Thanks to Shiny Ribs for our music and to Annie's List and Texas Tech, our sponsors this week. On behalf of Patrick, Marissa, Aaliyah, and our producers, Todd and Bobby, this is Emily. Thanks for listening. Texas talking. Texas talking. Ooh, that Texas talking. Texas talking. Talking about Texas talking, baby. Texas talking, talking about that. Texas talking, baby. Texas talking. Don't let me see you cry.
Uh, yep. Here I am. Oh, yeah, you're going to have to use your outside voice on the trip cast. <laughs> oh, so him. <laughs> Here I am. <laughs> oh, you were nice by the I know you had it in you. 